from St. James' epistle, so faith by itself, as if it does not have works, is dead. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, good morning. So, uh, since we had such an overwhelming support for our summer sermon series on David, a clamoring even, almost like calls for an encore at a Justin Bieber concert, there was that much excitement, I'm just playing. Uh, I decided to uh, kind of pivot and change direction a little bit and spend the next four weeks on the Epistle of James, the second short series in Scripture from the Epistle of James, which actually teaches us as Christians how to live. It's important. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this, but there's been debate over the centuries, particularly since the Reformation, about the Epistle of James, and people make a mistake that James is not talking about salvation, but something called sanctification. In other words, once you are saved, once you are a Christian, how do you live? If you notice repeatedly, John, James uses the word brothers, right? Adelphoi is the Greek word, Philadelphia, for example. And uh, so the idea here is that word brother does not mean just men, it means Christians. So James is actually addressing the church. That's you and me who claim Jesus as our Lord and Savior and then say, okay, now what do I do? a lot to cover here. There's a lot to cover, and I'll just preface this whole sermon by saying this, that works, what you do in your life, listen, is not a cause of your salvation, but a consequence. Or you might even say that faith flows out, sorry, works, what you do flows out of a converted heart. That's what James is driving at all along. And so the point of all that is that James's epistle is meant to kind of kind of reel you in, right? All of us, including me, uh, we get lazy, we get distracted in our faith, we kind of forget the things that are important. And so James is always, I don't know, kind of tweaking us a little bit, making us squirm. And so he is going to probably offend you in the next four weeks. You'll probably be offended, and I would say to you, that's good. You know, our culture today says, how dare you offend me? How dare you challenge me? But you know, if you just stop and think about it for a moment, when you are offended by something, that is an opportunity for you and I to grow. Because if you're offended by something which affects you, which hurts, you know, kind of seeps into your marrow, maybe it offends you because of something you need to work on. And that's James's point. James is going to make you squirm. If he doesn't make you squirm this week, he will next week, I promise. <laughs> but the point of all this, what James is kind of challenging us with, are the things that we should be doing once we claim faith in Jesus. Amen? You with me? So if you squirm, good. If you're offended, good. And I say that not to be offensive, but because when we are offended by something which challenges us, there's probably a reason. And the reason is probably because it's something you're not doing. Anyway, we're going to get to that today. In fact, before I launch in, let me just share you one thing. I, I didn't know this until a couple days ago. I always thought this came from, from Charles Spurgeon, a preacher. It doesn't. It's a quote from a guy uh, who was um, in the Chicago Evening Post who said once that the job of the media, I'm not sure I agree with this, but he said that the job of the press back in 1893 was to comfort the afflicted, listen, to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Now, I've always thought that was a preacher's quote. It's not, but it, it applies, and it certainly applies to James. James should work for the Wall Street Journal. <laughs> James should be a columnist. Columnist. He comforts the afflicted, which we'll see, 
and he also afflicts the comfortable, right? So he kind of keeps us on, on our toes. So we're going to look at a couple things here where he challenges us to grow in different areas, in our work, in our finances, in our health, in our trust in God, how we treat other people, how we speak. So two points this morning. I'm going to look at how struggle, suffering, this, this challenge, how that, how that changes our behavior, point number one, that's huge. And then secondly, how this struggle, this challenge, changes our view of the world around us. So as we go through James this morning, I want you to look at two big points, and it's how does James's, our struggles in our walk with Christ change our behavior, and how does it change the way we just see the world in general? You with me? All right. Here we go. So first thing is, how does, James, how does James change our behavior? Let me show you something here. Um, James, first of all, he writes with a series of questions. And he says here, um, here it is, verse 4. He says, uh, if you treat a rich man with honor and a poor man with less honor, which we've all done. He doesn't say that part. That's my commentary. Um, he says, if you do... Re- re- Treat a wealthy or important or prosperous man with honor and a poor man with disrepute, with dishonor. He says, quote, verse 4, Have you, y'all, second person plural, not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, let me just stop here for a second. If you look at that again, this is really important. James is actually not looking for an answer. He's not looking for you to answer the question. James is using a rhetorical device, or a device called a rhetorical question. A rhetorical question is a question that both the asker and the hearer already know the answer to. Okay? So when James says, are you, he's, the answer to the question is yes, and so the underlying assumption is why are you doing it? So the point I want you to see here, because James uses this all the way through the epistle, these rhetorical questions are questions that James asks you when he already knows the answer, and so do you. So do I. And the reason he brings us up is because these questions are things that we've avoided, or we've repressed, or we've not dealt with. Things that we just would rather ignore. Things we'd rather put aside. So James is intentionally asking us a series of rhetorical questions to, to, to make us squirm, frankly, and, lead, and therefore lead us to change. Let me, give, let me ask you a question and then give you an example. Has anyone ever pointed out a fault in you? Anybody? Not not Father Switz, of course. The man is without blame. (laughs) But, I mean, has anybody ever questioned you, you know, called you out on something? It can be a short temper. It can be a critical spirit. Something that you wrestle with. The person says, you know, you really, uh, I don't know, drink too much, spend too much, smoke too much, spend too much time on TikTok, which I do not do. I don't even have it. But it doesn't matter. Whatever that thing is, when that person challenges you, they're they're challenging you on a besetting sin. They're challenging you to uh, recognize a fault. It is offensive for only one reason, because they're challenging you on it, and you already know it. Right? I mean, I'll give you an example. Um, If somebody challenges you on something that you're, something you need to work on, you know it, they know it, your friends know it, your priest probably knows it too, just because people are pretty much the same. But if the person accuses you of something which, which really offends you and makes you kind of angry and squirm, there's a reason. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. If someone said to me, you know, Rodriguez, you're a lousy, terrible, awful golfer. 
I would say, so what? I don't care. Golf's a stupid sport. No, I'm kidding, it's not. But, but to be a guy, I, see, did I make you squirm? Uh, go, golf requires patience and time, and I have very little of either. So I am not a golfer. If someone said to me, Father Rodriguez, you are a horrible ba- basketball player, I'd say, yes, I am, and I don't care. But if someone said to me, I'm impatient or I'm demanding, or for example, if my wife points out to me that I'm not listening to her when she talks to me, she'll get a reaction. She'll get a reaction out of me, and if somebody accuses me of being impatient or uh, demanding, you'll get a reaction out of me. I will be angry. I'll be frustrated. Do you know why? Because I know it's true. That's my point. The epistle of James is convicting because he points out things, they're rhetorical questions, that we already know are true. Jesus affli- or James afflicts the comfortable. He's always challenging us to not see things, to see ourselves the way that God sees us. And today he points out this idea of favoritism. Do you show favoritism? Of course you do. Do you, uh, do you honor the rich man more than the poor man? Of course you do. Everybody does it. It's a rhetorical question, but the point stands. Should you? So here's my, here's my question for you this morning. Where is James, the epistle of James, calling you out? Because it's not really James, you see. It's the Holy Spirit working through James. Maybe so far you're like, you know, Father, I'm feeling pretty good this morning. It is uh, 1030 on a Sunday, and I feel all right. Well, good. So far. <laughs> Just wait. Maybe you really are never critical of other people. Maybe you are never critical of another soul. Okay, great. Just wait. Maybe you, uh, maybe you don't value rich and powerful people more than the poor and needy. Okay, maybe you don't. Just wait. James is going to challenge you. God is going to challenge you. Not to question your salvation, but because you claim it, you see. Faith without works, friends. You said you believe in Jesus? Great. If you don't, if that change in your life, your faith is dead. So James challenges us to be convicted of our own shortfalls, to confront them head on, to admit to ourselves that we need Jesus as our Lord and Savior, and once we are saved, we are called to live like it by his grace and power. So James is always calling us out on our own junk, right? Our own shortcomings, our own failings. And that's the first thing, and it's a good thing. When, you, when, God, when Scripture calls, causes you to squirm, it's a good thing. It's for your own good. But the second thing I want you to see here is that James challenges not only what we do, but how we see the world around us. Let me, let me just say this. Um, real faith, real faith as the Bible describes it, man, it changes people. I saw a great... Uh, a plaque at a, a conference I went to, a church conference a couple of years ago, and it said, uh, faith changes people for good. I love that. It's a double entendre. Faith changes people for good. But real faith changes people. Real faith in Jesus changes people. And here's why I say that. Because a lot of people think that religious faith means that you believe in God, right? I presume everybody here believes in God, right? Amen? God doesn't care if you believe he exists. What? Let me show you something here. Most people think of of faith in God as either, if you're not a Christian, you see it as naive, wishful thinking, you know, fairies and gumdrops and all that kind of stuff. 
And, uh, or you see it as, uh, as, as, if you're a Friedrich Nietzsche kind of guy, you know, if you're a sort of modern contemporary commentator on the news, you see Christianity as uh, intellectually vapid, dangerous, and maybe even deplorable. But, but, we th- but I think even the more dangerous thing, the even more dangerous thing, listen to this, this is going to surprise you, it's going to make you squirm, it's supposed to, that just believing in God is the most dangerous way to think of your faith. Here's what I mean. I don't want you to think of your faith as I believe that God exists. That's not what the Bible talks about. Most people think of it that way. Most people think of faith as, I'm gonna borrow a quote from Tim Keller. Tim Keller, book study. Tim Keller says most people say that faith is, quote, an intellectual assent to a truth claim. I believe God exists. I have faith. I believe in God. You know what? God doesn't care if you believe he exists. Jesus, James says later on, and I'll get to this next week in James 2.19, James says, yeah, you believe that God exists? Good. Let me tell you something. James says, and I quote, you believe that God is one? You do well. But even the demons believe, and they shudder. See, here's what I want you to take away. This is really important. What I want you to see here is that faith in God is not just believing that he exists because the Bible presumes you already know that. Even demons believe God exists and they shudder. But faith in God is not just believing in him, it's learning to trust him. Listen, faith, biblical faith is the word pastuo and it doesn't mean I believe something is true, it means I trust it. So Christian faith is about taking our life and trusting God to change us. Faith is a verb. It is putting your trust in God and watching him work in your life. Faith manifests itself in a life that trusts God and waits on him when you don't know what's going to happen next. When you're scared, when you're worried, when you're fearful, when the world is falling apart, man, and if it's not happening to you yet, it will. The biblical faith is not, I believe God is there. No, biblical faith is, man, this is awful, but I believe God has got my back. And he does. Faith is, biblical faith is trusting in God. And the way you learn to trust God, listen, is by trusting him and see that he delivers. It's no different than trusting your, your wife, your parents, your friends. I'll never forget a, a funny story. Bishop Salmon, may he rest in peace, former bishop of South Carolina, Father Switz knows him, used to work for him. Uh, bishop Salmon was on an airplane one time with a guy and uh, they were sitting next to each other, and they were chatting about God, because it always comes up on airplanes. If you're wearing a collar, a person is going to tell you how, what a, that they, well, whatever. Anyway, the guy says to Bishop Sam, and he says, you know, I don't go to church. Uh, I don't get into all that reli- organized religion. And he says, but I don't go to church, but I, but I believe in God. And Bishop Salmon said, well, you know, if you don't know Bishop Salmon, that's how he talks, right? Right? Bishop Salmon said, well, you know, you say you believe in God, you don't go to church. That's like saying you believe in your mother and don't visit her on Mother's Day. That's my point. You see, faith in God, faith in anything, faith in, is not just believing in God, but trusting him. And that he is changing you. And the only way you learn that, friends, is through suffering. And the only way you learn it is by seeing that he actually does. James says famously, friends, faith without works is dead. Faith does not transform you, both in what you do and how you think. 
that faith will not save you. It's not true. But a living faith, you see, changes not only the things that you do, but how you see the world around you. See, to be free from something, to be free from something, to be free from something in this world and to see the world from a different perspective means that something used to have control over you, but no longer does. That's what biblical freedom means. That you used to be afraid, and maybe you still are, but you're learning to trust God in what's happening because you're seeing little things go that begin to open your eyes to the fact that you are being set free from something which burdens you. Being free from something means putting aside something which had control over you but no longer does. Being free from something means putting your trust in Jesus and letting him change you. You know, I was telling Father Gritter this morning, I saw a, a meme on Facebook. It was kind of funny. A meme is when you have a picture of something and then there's a, this bothered me today, a picture of something and then you have a quote underneath it. And it was a staged picture. It was a fake picture. It was a staged picture of a guy on an, in, a, in front of a private jet at an airport. I don't know where it was. Uh, some, some 40-something-year-old guy, you know, dressed to the nines in front of, an air, in front of his airplane, clearly his own airplane, uh, dressed to the nines, leaning against his private jet with beautiful women all around him and champagne bottles around and just, I think there was a Bentley off to the side, right? And that's the meme. And then underneath it, it said, you know, the idea is that this guy's rich, powerful, famous, and got women and other, everything the world could offer. And the meme below it said, most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Isn't that great? That's a paraphrase, actually. If you don't know where, it's a real quote. And it comes from a guy named Henry David Thoreau. The famous line actually is, the mass of men, and it includes women, lead lives of quiet desperation. But the point here, what I'm, the meme I thought was funny, is because here's this, you know, this guy who seemingly has everything, and yet inside he is desperate, quietly desperate. Seemingly got it all together, but quietly crumbling. And here's why I tell you this. Because the world will offer you that, you see. The world offers us these things, but where the real change comes from is Jesus working on your heart to change you from the inside out. Where these things of the world no longer really matter. Yeah, private planes are cool, and champagne, if you like it, is good. And I'm sure a Bentley is fun to drive, never driven one. But the reality is, those things don't actually make you happy. What actually makes, brings you spirits of joy, a spirit of joy and peace is a life with Jesus at the center. Friends, as Christians, we are called to live new lives. The Christian walk is all about putting aside the old man and becoming the new man. Putting, putting aside the where we used to be and walking to where God is leading us to go. And sometimes it is two steps forward and one steps back. Okay, fine. But the point is Jesus is changing us, that our faith should be manifested in the way we live and think. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, I love this, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, a duo. Look, the new has come. If anyone is in Christ, if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. The old has passed away and is passing away. Behold, Paul says, the new has come. St. St. James reminds us that Jesus pays for our sin and sets us free. That Jesus has taken out the trash, so stop living in the trash, right? Jesus has saved you, now go and live like it. Live in victory. Live in a life that does not have fear, but knows that you can trust God in all things. 
Jesus, James is challenged to us is not condemnation, but a call to live in victory. Reality, a call to be free so that Christ changed us from the inside out. To live lives of holiness, of goodness, of joy, of peace, of trust. Frankly, friends, James challenges us to live our lives with Jesus and Jesus alone at the center. Shall we pray? Father, we remind us today that we come to Jesus, and when we come to Jesus, our journey is just starting. Help us, Lord, to see your hand in our lives, to trust you more and more, that when we realize things in our lives that need to be changed, that we trust you to change us, that the life of the Christian walk is a life of constant growth and trusting in you. Help us see the world this way. Help us see ourselves this way as men and women women being formed in victory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.